Okay. Show me. Sometimes that is better. Welcome to the Prairie Land Paranormal Podcast. Be sure you never, ever scream. A podcast where we will explore the dark corners of our world, the weird, the creepy, and the strange. There are no accidents, no coincidences. I am your host, Eric Carrier. The Boogeyman is real. And they must be coming night. My co-host is Jessica Carrier. Thank you for joining us for a journey into the unknown. Be one of us. Let's get started with today's show. Hey guys, welcome to the show. This is the Prairie Land Paranormal Podcast and I am your host, Eric. I am here as always with my wife and my co-host, Jessica. Jessica, how are you today? I am doing great. How are you, Eric? I'm doing well, too. I think today's show is going to be a good one. Yes, I'm excited. Something I've been curious about for a long time. So what is it that we have in store for our listeners? Well, today we are going to be discussing urban legends and if there's any truth to them. I think we found out, Jess, that there's actually a lot of truth to some of these stories. Yes, it was horrifyingly interesting to find out that a lot of these urban legends have some form of truth and that truth might be kind of scary. So I gotta ask, are we gonna be talking about the psycho with the hook hand? Because I've always wondered if anyone's actually been killed by a maniac with a hook hand. We'll be discussing that. Awesome, all right. But before we can do that, we do have to take a moment and do some self-promotion. Don't worry, we'll keep it short. Basically, the spiel is this. Thanks for listening. Please share the show. Check out our website if you're interested in merch or leaving a tip. Leave a review and a subscribe to our social media channels. We have accounts on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and TikTok. And we'd love to hang out and meet you guys there. Guys, we love interaction and we love being able to interact with you guys. And it uh, keeps us motivated to keep doing this. So please feel free to reach out and uh, give us some motivation to keep this rolling. Yes, give us ideas, give us even some critiques. We love it. So please interact. Jess, is there anything else? Nope. All right, guys, let's get started with today's show. Right, Jess. So urban legends, you know, these come to us at many different points within our lives, right? Yes. Usually when you're a child or a teenager and you're not quite sure if they're true or not because you're still in the figuring things out phase. I remember hearing these stories, you know, in Boy Scouts, uh, over the campfire, at sleepovers and other just kind of group activities that I did as a kid or in a young adult, really. I remember just talking about these things with my friends, trying to scare each other and one-up each other with the scariest story I've ever heard. I remember these stories being, you know, just creepy enough to be scary, but also having usually some sort of a moral element to them. Yes, and usually there was also a part of the story that made it possibly not true, but you weren't quite sure. Some part of it that seemed like a bit of a tall tale or a, well, or a legend, an yes. urban legend. <laughs> so the purpose of this episode is to take a look at some of the, I guess, most popular urban legends and uh, see what levels of truth are actually behind them. 
And these are the most popular urban legends that we can remember or that are from the United States. But there are tons of urban legends from all over the world in many different countries. So it's not culturally specific to the United States, but these are some of the stories that made an impression on our lives when we were younger. Yeah, the ones that we are familiar with hearing as children and adolescents. If you have an urban legend that is specific to your country or to your culture, we would really be interested in hearing that. Yes, we are folklorists and we love listening to these stories, so please share. All right, Jess, so I think the first one we're going to tackle here is the call coming from inside the house, or also known as the babysitter. Yes, now this urban legend was very scary for me because I'm the oldest of 11 children, so I babysat a lot. And the idea of the vulnerability of being alone where you are the adult around other children and you're still not an adult, you're a teenager, this was particularly scary to me. Yeah, I did some babysitting as an adolescent as well. Not much, but a little bit. And I do remember the oddness of it, just being in someone else's house, having responsibility for someone else's child or children, and often taking place late into the night in some instances. And a lot of times when I did babysitting, I wasn't old enough to drive. So it wasn't like if there was an emergency, I could just pick up and take the kids somewhere. So that's also, you know, when you're an adult, you have a little bit more freedom. uh, Yeah, freedom. And you have more life experience with knowing what's real and what's not real and what's really scary and not really scary. I don't know if I've got that figured out yet, Jess. (laughs) True. But you're definitely at that age starting to, you know, to weigh real versus fact or fable or legend or just in general, the truthfulness of things. It's about the time in life where you realize that there's not really a monster under your bed, but there really are monsters out there. And most of them are people and not figments of our imagination or folk tales or fables. And this legend in particular is based upon people being monsters. Jess, go ahead and share the legend. All right. The story goes like this. A teenage girl is babysitting alone at night. She is watching television while the kids are upstairs asleep. Then the phone rings. It's an unknown caller who says in a creepy voice, Check the children. The call is dismissed as a prank and the girl hangs up. But that's not the end of things. She keeps getting the phone call over and over again. Check the children. Understandably, she becomes very frightened and she decides to call the police who inform her that they will trace the next call. After the stranger calls again, Check the children. Slamming the phone down, it rings again. But this time it's the police, and they tell her to get out of the house. She leaves the house, leaving the children, and meets the police, who then tell her that the calls were coming from inside the home. When the police check the scene, the maniac is found hiding upstairs. Now, there are a few different versions of this urban legend, and some the children are fine, and some the children are not. Some the psycho is no longer there, and some he's caught. So there's many different versions of this particular story. But there's a few red flags right off the bat, Jess, isn't there? I mean, I have a few questions, obviously. Yeah, as an adult listening to this, I'm like, okay, so why would the police 
trace the call instead of just coming to the house or saying, uh, why don't you get the kids and get them out of the house? They say, okay, we're going to trace the call. It, <laughs> it just doesn't make a lot of sense. The other question I have is growing up in the 80s where we did have landline phones, Jess, I mean, you couldn't pick up your phone and call yourself. Yeah, I remember that from the 80s. I remember hearing the story and saying, how did they do that? Because I remember I would try to do it on my phone, you know, to prank someone and you can't call your own number. No, you would have to have a second line. And that was pretty rare in the 80s to have a home with any sort of second telephone line. Now, I say 80s, but this story's really been around since as early as the 50s. And it's been the premise for many movies and many books. You may recognize this as the premise for the ever-popular Halloween movie, which was originally supposed to be called The Babysitter Murders. And I remember reading R.L. Stein's The Babysitter when I was like 12 or 13. And actually, it, I loved this book but it freaked me out quite a bit. So movies and books have perpetuated this legend for a very, very long time, keeping it very mainstream. But is it based on any fact, Jess? Unfortunately, yes. We have found two different stories of babysitter killers, and one goes all the way back to 1950. Yeah, so in March 1950 in Columbia, Missouri, there was an 8th grader by the name of Janet Christman who reportedly skipped a party with her friends to babysit for a local family by the name of the Romax. When she arrived to babysit for this family, the 3-year-old was already asleep in his room. That's the kind of babysitting jobs I liked. Yeah, the best part of babysitting always happens when the kids are asleep. <laughs> Getting them there is usually the hard part. That's when the best part of adulthood happens, too. Mm -hmm. So while this case remains unsolved, what we do know is that Janet Chrisman was raped and strangled to death that night with the cord from a iron. And what's really creepy about this story is that she did try to call the police. Yes, all they heard was screaming and pleading for the police to come quick. The police were unable to trace the call where it was coming from, so they didn't know how to help her. It was also reported that Mrs. Romack tried to call and check up on things, but only got a busy signal on the line. This was pretty normal for the day and time, so she didn't worry about it too much. But in reality, the phone line was probably busy because it was still off the hook while Janet's body lay dead on the floor. The Romax didn't uh, return home until about 1.30 that night, and when they did, they discovered Janet's body, and they also discovered lots of signs that a violent struggle had taken place. Fortunately, when they checked on their child, their child was safe and had slept through the entire incident. The primary suspect for this incident was a man by the name of Robert Mueller, he was a friend of the Romax, and he had made some comments about uh, Janet on a couple of occasions, particularly commenting on her form and how well she was developing as a woman, and just generally creepy kind of comments that a man should not be making about a young girl. Yeah, that's creepy. He also ran his hand along Janet's dress two days before the murder, and he was known to carry a mechanical pencil that matched the puncture wounds that the police found in Janet's body. Unfortunately, this was all circumstantial, 
and the Boone County Sheriff's Department was not able to make a case against Mr. Mueller, and the case remains unsolved even today. This next story takes place in Colorado Springs, Colorado, in February of 1977. The babysitter's name was Maria Hansel, and she was just 14 years old, and was killed while babysitting in some apartments just across from where she lived. This case is still a cold case and is unsolved, but what we know is that Maria's killer somehow entered the apartment, leaving no signs of forced entry or robbery, and stabbed Maria dozens of times, resulting in her death. Unfortunately, in this case, the commotion did wake the children, and they actually witnessed the attack. One of the young boys told the police that he'd gone to bed around 8 o'clock, but something awoke him that caused him to go to the hallway. He observed a male holding the victim's mouth. He heard yelling and screaming, specifically, stop it. He then said this male and Maria then went to his mother's bedroom. He described the male as white, about 17 years of age, 6 feet tall, with acne and wearing a fluffy blue down coat, blue jeans, and black sneakers. Prior to the attack, Maria had reached out and talked to one of her close friends on the telephone. This friend's name was Kathy Moberly, and I think she gives the best reason for why this type of urban legend continues to live on forever and ever. She said, quote, it scarred us all for life. All right, Jess, so this is the one that I wanted to tackle. I wanted to know if anyone has ever been killed on Lover's Lane by a man with a hook. The hook man. Yes, I've always wanted to know if this is true. I think we've all heard it before. Two teenagers are parked in a car, maybe making out on Lover's Lane. Maybe, come on. Or <laughs> some deserted area. And conveniently, the radio switches to an urgent message that there is a, an escaped prisoner or escaped, I don't know, Psychotic killer of some sort. Psychotic killer from a mental institute, something like that, has escaped and has a hook for a hand, and he's on the loose. The girl gets maybe a little frightened by this, but not too much, and the boy talks her back into kissing, and they're smooching, and things are going fine until they hear scratching on the door. Of course, the girl gets scared, and she says, we need to leave now. The boyfriend gets frustrated with her fears, but he listens to her, and they speed off, when they get to her house, they make a grisly discovery that there is a hook stuck in the handle of the car door. Now, like many urban legends, this story has many different variations. In some of the variations, the couple is murdered. Uh, in some of the variations, the boyfriend gets out of the car to inspect the sounds and is murdered. But in all instances... There is a hook involved in some way. It's either in the car door, or it's stuck in the trunk, or it's stuck in the hood of the car. But the hook is a major part of the story. I find it interesting that a hook is something so scary. Because really, how scary is a hook? It's not like a knife or a gun or something. It's a hook. I'm scared of a hook. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we're thinking like Captain Hook or... I don't know. It just it, does it perpetuate this idea that people with disabilities are scary? I don't understand the hook. Well, if that hook is sticking out of your face, you're going to understand the hook. <laughs> and you're going to understand why that hook is scary. But most hooks 
are not sharp and pointy. They're just curved to help you grab things. It's not like someone's sharpening their hook and they're going to kill you with it. Jess, this is a psycho killer. Of course he's sharpening his hook and going to kill you with it. I have no idea why this story chooses a hook to be the scary element, but it is the scary element, and for me it works. And it may just be that element that adds a little bit of horror to the story, but it does. It adds a little bit of horror to the story. What's ironic to me, though, is that even though this legend may be based in some fact, none of the stories that this can be taken from involved a hook that we know of (laughs) so if you are a hook hand psycho killer we would love to hear from you (laughs) just to kind of figure out hey if you're actually using that hook for nefarious purposes so the truth is though is that this story like many other urban legends has been around for a very very long time starting probably in about the mid 50s and it is absolutely not hard to find stories of Couples that have been murdered while they're out in their cars parked alone. That is not the unusual part of the story at all. But in particular, there are two stories that this is probably loosely based on. Yes, the first took place in the late winter of 1946 in Texarkana. Texarkana is a city on the border of Texas and Arkansas. And eight people were attacked, five of them killed, all late at night as they were parked on various lovers' lanes or secluded makeout spots. These murders all occurred within a 10-week period, and all of the individuals were shot with a 32 pistol, except for one. And it wasn't long before all the stores in Texarkana were sold out of guns, ammunitions, and locks. Yes, these murders were sensationalized to an international level, so people in other countries We're aware of these murders. There was a prime suspect, and his name was uh, Yule Sweeney, and he was just kind of your basic career petty criminal. And the police interest in him was primarily based on some statements that were made by his wife. And unfortunately, that was circumstantial evidence, and they were not able to put together a case definitely linking Yule to these murders. But they were able to put together a case linking him to car theft and forgery, and he did spend a very, very long time in prison, just not for these murders. Now, another popular spree killer or serial killer uh, that involves lovers' lanes is also the Zodiac Killer, whose first three attacks occurred on couples. The first murders widely attributed to the Zodiac were the shootings of high school students Betty Lou Jensen and David Arthur Faraday on December 20th, 1968. These took place on Lake Herman Road, which is why they are known as the Lake Herman Road Murders. The bodies of the couple were found in a gravel turnout that is well known as a lover's lane. The couple were there alone together on their first date. The next couple to be attacked by the Zodiac was Darlene Farron and Michael Maju, and they were attacked at the Blue Rock Springs Park in Vallejo, California, and the couple were sitting together in the car when another car pulled in behind them and a man approached their vehicle shining a flashlight in their eyes. This man then began to fire a gun into the car This killed Farron and gravely injured Maju, who did end up surviving this attack. 
despite being shot multiple times to the face, neck, and the chest. The next murder associated with the Zodiac Killer was the Lake Berryessa murder. In this case, a man approached Brian Hartnell and Cecilia Shepard as they were picnicking at the lake. He forced Hartnell to tie up Shepard and then stabbed the couple repeatedly. A man and his son, who were fishing nearby, heard the screams of the victims and reported it to park rangers. Both Shepard and Hartnell were conscious when sheriff deputies arrived on the scene, but Shepard later succumbed to her injuries, dying two days later. Now, while there are many other deaths that are associated with the Zodiac Killer, these first three attacks all occurred on couples that were out in secluded areas. And because of that, this urban legend has taken on the role of becoming a morality story, a warning against teenage promiscuity, right, Jess? Yes, exactly. The moral of the story is don't make out, and especially don't go make out in secluded dark areas where someone could come around and kill you. So it seems that while there are some real true cases of lovers' lanes-type murders, this story serves more as a morality tale. Yes, and there was no hook. No, dang it, there was no hook. (laughs) I wanted there to be a hook, but there was no hook. Just human monsters. So, Jess, I'm noticing now that we're about 22 minutes into this episode, and we've only gotten through two stories. Yes, we have a lot, so we might have to do more episodes to cover all of our stories. Yeah, so I think it's reasonable to expect that this is going to be at least a two-part series. Considering that, now seems like a good time to take a break, so let's take a break, and we'll be back with a couple more Urban Legend True Stories. Hey, this is Jeremiah from the What If They're Wrong podcast, a podcast that wants you to question everything. We cover fringe topics, conspiracies, anything strange, Bigfoot, alien, near-death experience, ancient pasts like lost civilizations, a whole bunch of good stuff, things that will make you question your reality and what you think, and other things that will just shatter your reality. So if you want to tune in, good podcast with good guests and a lot of stuff that'll make you really think stop on by what if they're wrong all right folks we are back and let's go ahead and continue on with our urban legend true stories let's continue with the killer in the back seat so jess what is the urban legend of the killer in the back seat Okay, Eric, I'm going to do this in my scary voice. Oh, this ought to be good. (laughs) In this legend, a woman is driving alone at night when she notices she's being followed by a car or a truck. The mysterious pursuer drives really close to the back of her car and flashes his high beams. He continues to tailgate her and sometimes even rams her vehicle. When she finally makes it home, She realizes that the driver isn't trying to scare her or run her off the road, but is in fact trying to warn her that there is a man, a murderer or escaped mental patient, 
hiding in the back of her car. Each time the man sat up to attack her, the driver tailgating her would flash his high beams to scare the killer, causing him to duck and back down. Was that scary enough, Eric? I think you're going to have to ask our listeners that. I was a little disturbed, though. Good. I meant it to be that way. Okay, so like all of the urban legends that we've already talked about, there are multiple different variations that also fall into this story. In one of those variations, she's actually at a gas station when the attendant lures her into the station, saying that there is a problem with her credit card. And once she's in the station, the attendant tells her that he saw someone hiding in the back seat of her car. In yet another version, the woman gets into her car just as a crazed-appearing man leaps out of nowhere and starts shouting at her and banging on her car windows and doors. The woman quickly manages to escape from him, but no matter how far she drives or in what direction, every time she stops, some crazy person appears and appears to attack her car. The woman, obviously scared out of her mind at this point, decides to drive to the nearest police station and tell the police about the attacks on her vehicle. The police are able to calm her down, and as the officer is walking her out to her car, he sees that there is a crazed lunatic hiding behind the driver's seat. And as it turns out, these crazed people were just trying to warn her about the killer in her back seat. Some of these legends even say that these crazed people were the ghosts of the killer's previous victims. So yeah, so maybe some red flags in this story too, Jess. I mean, it doesn't make much sense for a murderer to be discovered multiple times only to stay in a vehicle and And still try to do still try to kill someone. (laughs) Yeah. It seems like it would be in their best interest to just run away. Yeah, if someone, if they are trying to kill someone and not be seen, they've already been seen by the person in the truck. Yeah, and once you're seen, your cover's blown, so you might as well just escape at that point. Or just kill the person. What What is a, a few, you know, high beams going to do to stop you from killing someone? Yeah, if your goal is to kill somebody, high beams or not, or crazy drivers, or people banging on your car, or police officers, none of that's really going to stop you, right? Not if you're crazy and your purpose is to kill someone. Yeah, definitely. If you're crazy enough to hide in someone's backseat and be discovered multiple times, just go ahead and get on with it. Now, I will say that the staying power of the story is huge, right, Jess? Yes. It's the idea that what you thought was scary really isn't scary, and what is really scary is something you can't see. So in other words, what you're saying is that the idea that the car behind you honking or tailgating or crazy people coming up and banging on your car seems like what should actually be scary, but what's actually scary is the phantom in the back seat who's attempting to murder you. Yes. Now, I'm going to say this. I still check my back seat when I get in my car. Do you? I don't check my back seat, but I do check behind the shower curtain when I get into the bathroom. Jess, why do you not check the back seat? Come on, there's got to be a killer back there. I've usually got 10 kids in the back seat, so I'm not too worried about it. The killer's the one who needs to worry about that. When did we get five additional kids? Well, you know, I'm exaggerating. Or they're friends or something like that. There's always people in our back seat when I'm driving. Folks, we only have five children, so if there's 10 (laughs) of my children in this vehicle, something else is going on. The 10 of them have black eyes and are murderous. (laughs) 
So it seems, folks, that we have five natural children and five supernatural children. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So the real question is, though, is this based on truth? Well, yes and no. And that depends on the variation. As far as we can tell, this did happen for real in one occasion. Yeah, and that occurred in 1964, and it was in New York City, and there was an escaped convict and murderer who did attempt to hide in the back seat of a car. But the car belonged to a police detective who discovered the murderer and shot him. Now, there's no mention in this story on whether this escaped murderer was intending to murder this police detective. But one thing is for sure, it's not a story based on a alone woman driving alone at night. But this story is believed to be the originating story that spurred the legend. Now, over the years, as society has changed, so has a legend. It's morphed into multiple internet tales. I mean, I've heard ones about gang initiations. I've heard ones about sex slavery. Have you heard any of these, Eric? Well, I've definitely heard the two variations that you just mentioned. Those seem to make their way through the internet every few years, it seems, with a new variation. I know for certain, you know, in the 80s and in the 90s, this was attributed to gang-related activity in which gang members were purportedly sneaking into vehicles in order to rape and or murder women as part of their gang initiation. I know more modern tales that involve women being abducted and sold into sex slavery. So yes, both of those seem to be very common variations of this tale. But luckily, there is very little or actually really no records of this ever really truly playing out in real life, at least in the way that it's portrayed in the urban legend. Now, if you're going to portray this as a carjacking, the incidences of this go up exponentially. But that takes away from the lurking in the back seat detail of this urban legend, because most carjackers do not lurk in the back seat. They simply smash, grab, and or open doors and force people out. But a lot of people do consider this urban legend to be sexist today. Why is that, Jess? Because the person who is being attacked is always a woman. The person she's going to be rescued by is always a man. And the person attacking is always a man. So the woman is the vulnerable aspect in the story. I like knowing that it's not a true urban legend because I don't personally believe that women are more vulnerable to attacks than men. Yeah, and there are no variations to this story that involve a woman in the back seat and a male driving the vehicle or being safe. And in all of these stories, it seems to Jess, the woman is kind of portrayed as being mm, ditzy. Yeah, scared of everything and everybody. Of course, I don't know. I would be kind of scared if someone was tailgating me and flashing their lights at me. But in these stories, she is unable to perceive the real danger. Yeah, she doesn't really seem to be able to catch on to the source of the real peril in the story, does she? No. But as with all urban legends, there is a moral. What would you say the moral is to this story, Jess? I'd say it's basically be aware of your surroundings. Check your back seats. That's something that maybe I need to work on. You drive a van, Jess. There's a lot of back seats to check. (laughs) Well, I'm not always aware of my surroundings. A lot of times I'm in my own world, but I'm not ditzy. No comment. (laughs) 
Yeah, I would agree. The general moral to this story is, you know, just being aware of your surroundings and locking your doors. And this is good advice for both men and women. I don't think that this is women-specific advice. Yeah, all of the chain males would say, guys, tell the women you know about this. Doesn't matter how old they are. Tell your women. Well, honestly, everybody should be aware of their surroundings and lock their doors. Be cautious, everybody. Yeah, I would be interested in knowing if this urban legend is specific to the United States or if it's international. So if you're one of our international listeners and you have a story that's similar to this, we'd like to hear it. All right, Jess, so let's finish this episode up with one more. The infamous sewer alligators. Dun, dun, dun. So, Jess, have you heard of the infamous sewer alligators of New York City? Actually, I have. And I'm not really that scared of alligators, but I know people who are. And if I guess if an alligator turns up somewhere that's not supposed to be, like in the sewers of New York City, I can see how some people might be scared of this. You're not scared of an alligator? What kind of weirdo are you? <laughs> I'm not scared of an alligator in the wild. It's not like they're waiting around to jump at me. They're usually just doing their thing. We saw an alligator when we were in uh, Florida once. Remember that? Yes, and I didn't get anywhere near it because I didn't want it to jump out at me or anything. Oh, you don't get near them. I'm just not... They're not very scary to me. I like reptiles, so but I suppose some people are scared of them. So you're saying if you opened up a sewer manhole and there was a giant <laughs> alligator there, you would not be scared of it. Okay, I would be startled at seeing an alligator in a sewer manhole, but I don't really think that I'm going to be opening up a sewer manhole anywhere, especially not in New York City. The rats and all sorts of things like that. I'm more scared of the rats than I am the alligator. So I think what makes this urban legend a legend at all, is that it takes place in New York City, right? Yeah, somewhere where you would not expect a reptile to live naturally in the wild. If this was taking place in Alabama, if this was taking place in Florida, no one would really think twice about that, right? Yes, plus it's a big city. Um, how much wildlife do you really see in a big city, or large wildlife? Or exotic wildlife. Or potentially deadly wildlife. I mean, you might have a pigeon or a rat, but you're not going to see much. I'll let you go tell all those plague people that <laughs> rats are not dangerous. <sighs> and we all know that pigeons are government spies. Oh, that's right. I forgot. So anyway, back to the alligators. Eric, where does this legend come from? Now, the origin of this legend is actually true. On February 10th, 1935, in... New York City on the corner of 123rd Street and Harlem, the New York Times reported that a 7-foot, 125-pound alligator turned up in the sewers there. It was discovered by two children who were shoveling some snow into the manhole when they suddenly saw some thrashing going on down in the manhole. Now, it was reported that the boys attached a slipknot around the creature and pulled it out of the manhole. The city was called, and the animal was found to be very diseased and was dispatched quickly and incinerated. But that is a true story from New York City history. And there is a book written in 1959 by Robert Daly entitled The World Beneath the City. And in this book... It actually has a chapter called Alligators in the Sewers. In this chapter, it talks about an interview with Teddy May, who is the commissioner of the sewers in New York for 30 years. 
According to May, sewer inspectors have been reporting seeing alligators as early as 1935. Of course, a lot of people didn't believe them and thought they were just drinking in the sewers. Because of this, May went down himself and found out that these reports were true. Especially when his own flashlight spotted alligators whose length on average was about two feet. An extermination campaign was started at that time, which included trying to poison the alligators and hunting them to get rid of them in the sewers. This also included trying to flood them out by flooding the sewers. And some of the reports were of albino alligators. Were there any reports, Jess, of uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles? (laughs) No, (laughs) but I can see where the idea came from. Now, this urban legend is based on one thing that's probably not very accurate. While there have been alligators found in the New York City sewer system, there's not really a large population of alligators in the New York City sewer system. And this would not be considered a thriving system of alligators in the sewer system. Or of large mutant alligators coming out and threatening people. This is more of maybe a few isolated instances, but I guess the question is, where did they come from? Well, they didn't migrate there. What's happening is people are bringing them there, and they are considered to be an illegal exotic pet. And the city of New York actually confiscates up to 100 alligators per year from people who are keeping them there as illegal pets. Now, what's happening is people are traveling to Florida, people are traveling to Alabama, And they are picking up baby alligators and they're bringing them back to the city in the hopes of keeping them as a pet. And then they're realizing that this is not a good pet to have in the city. And they're attempting to dispose of them in some way, whether flushing them down the toilet or letting them go in a pond or letting them go in the woods. And they're finding their ways into the sewers. What kind of person wants to keep an alligator as a pet? I don't think that whether you live in the city or not, Having an alligator as a pet is not a good idea. Well, there's at least 100 people in that city that disagree (laughs) with you each year. And then they get rid of those pets because they realize what a bad idea it is. Well, those are just the ones that are confiscated by the city. So it's not really known how many total alligators there are in the New York area. Now, New York City is also not the right type of environment for these types of animals. So even if they do escape or if they are let go in the wild, they're not likely to survive there on their own for very long, especially in the sewers where there's all kinds of bacteria and feces and just nastiness. That's not the typical lake or river or pond or swamp where these things are going to have their best existence. Which makes sense that they're only reported to be a few feet long and diseased. Yeah, and the report of that one being found in the winter, I find that kind of unusual too. I suspect that the sewers in New York City aren't much warmer than it is outside. I could be wrong about that though. I suppose that it is possible that the decay that takes place down there may produce some sort of heat, but as a warm-blooded animal, I don't see alligators doing well in the New York sewer system. I suspect that it's not like a cave system where you can rely on a specific temperature to be the same year long. Yeah, the sewers don't seem to be very far below ground where they could have the geothermal heat. It seems like maybe they're close enough to the surface where you can shovel snow into them. 
So the last report that we found of an alligator in the sewers in New York City came in 2010 when the uh, New York Police Department found a two-foot baby alligator in the sewers in Queens. So it seems like the cold weather, the cold temperatures, they definitely suffer from growth and they probably don't get much bigger there than, you know, two or three feet. Yeah, other than the one that was found in 1935 that was seven foot long, it seems like most of them reported to be really small. Maybe they were just barely let loose at that age and they haven't had a chance to mature and then they die before they get too big. So whatever the case, it is actually a real phenomenon. There are alligators that are occasionally found in the sewer system in New York City. And they even have a national holiday for it. Jess, what is the date of that holiday? Yes, February 9th is Alligators in the Sewer Day in Manhattan. Yeah, I don't know how they celebrate that holiday there. (laughs) But uh, it could be interesting, I think. Yeah. If you are from New York City and you are familiar with this holiday and how they celebrate it, please let us know. Yes, we'd love to hear. Yeah, and New York City isn't the only big city that has reports of alligators in the sewer. There are also reports that come out of Pittsburgh and uh, several reports of Nile crocodiles in the Paris-France sewers. In fact, a Nile crocodile was caught in the sewers in Paris on March 7th, 1984. The crocodile was named Eleanor and is currently living its life out in an aquarium. Which sounds like the best possible ending for an alligator in the sewer. All right, Jess, so we did not even get halfway through the stories that we were planning to get through today. Yes, we need to get to one of my favorite ones, so we'll have to do this again. So we're going to do this as a two-part episode, so expect uh, part two in uh, two weeks. And Jess, what was your favorite one that you wanted to make sure we got covered? Oh, it was the spider bite, definitely. Yeah, stay tuned uh, for the next episode, which will include the urban legend, The Spider Bite. All right, folks, that is going to do it for us. We will see you next time. All right, folks, that is the end of this episode. We want to thank you for joining us and let you know that we appreciate you listening. If you have enjoyed the show, please consider subscribing through your favorite podcast player. You can also find us on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. And if you would like to share an experience, be on the show, or submit a story, you can do that through our email at prairielandparanormalpodcast at gmail.com or through our website at www.prairielandparanormalpodcast.com. So, until next time, remember, don't be normal if you can be Paradise.